If you are willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Daniel chapter 8, we're continuing in our series through the book of Daniel, and we now come to chapter 8. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the horn with the two, he came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host... And some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it, together with the regular burnt offering, because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the end, for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose... Four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, 
but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Last week in Daniel 7, we saw a vision not of two beasts, but of four beasts. Do you remember what those beasts were? Daniel 7, there was a lion with eagle's wings. There was a bear with three ribs in its jaws. There was a leopard with wings and four heads. And there was a monster with iron teeth and ten horns. Pastor Troy explained that these four beasts represent four kingdoms. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Now as we think back to Daniel 7, remember the context. God's people are not on vacation. They're not at the beach. They're not at the mountains. They're in exile. Jerusalem and the temple are in ruins. That's the context. Psalm 137 is one psalm, one scripture that captures what God's people were feeling. That psalm says, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. There we sat down and wept. God's people had many questions. Questions like, God, where are you? Are you still on your throne? Will our suffering ever come to an end? And God answers these questions and others in Daniel 7, as we saw last week. Where's God? Daniel sees a vision of the Ancient of Days sitting on his throne. That's where God is. Is he still in control? Yes. The rise and fall of every one of these kingdoms is ordained by him. He's in control, and he has given his kingdom to the Son of Man. Will our suffering ever come to an end? Yes, in Daniel 7, the saints receive the kingdom, the kingdom that will last forever. So that's Daniel 7. That's Daniel 7. And as we turn now to Daniel 8, the visions narrow in focus. They become more specific. Think of Daniel 7 as a, I'm not a photographer, but think of it as a panoramic shot, a picture taken with a wide-angle lens. Then in Daniel 8, the picture focuses in. So in Daniel 7, there were four beasts. Here there are two. And in Daniel 7, there was a little horn. In this chapter, there's another little horn. But it focuses in, and there's no vision of the Ancient of Days on his throne or of the Son of Man receiving the kingdom. It focuses in. And here's... Here's the point of Daniel 8. If we were to sum it up in a brief sentence, this is what it would be. Persecution is coming, but its days are numbered. 
Persecution is coming, but its days are numbered. It's really, as we'll see, it's really a sobering point. This was a challenging chapter to study, to study through, to meditate on, to reflect on. And we'll see that as we go. Persecution is coming, but its days are numbered. And that's what I want to show you as we study through this chapter. As we get started, what's the setting? What's the setting for this chapter? Well, we read in the opening verse, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. So to put this in context, it's two years after Daniel 7. Daniel 7 was during the first year of Belshazzar's reign. Now it's the third year. So this means that the story of the writing on the wall from Daniel 5, that's still future. The empire in charge right now is Babylon. So all of that is future. God's people are still suffering in an exile, but God shows them what's to come. He shows them the future. What does Daniel see? He sees a vision of two beasts, a ram and a goat. Now, unlike Daniel 7, we don't have to, we have more certainty about the identity of the ram and the goat. Both are giving an, an ID card in verses 20 to 22. Those verses say, As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. As we go back in history, what do we know of the, of the Medo-Persian Empire? We could say lots of things, but we know that first it took down Babylon, and then it established the biggest empire that the Near, he, the Near East had ever seen before. It became, for 200 years, the unquestioned authority. For 200 years, everyone knew the media the Medo-Persian Empire, that's, that's who's in charge. What does Daniel see in the vision? He sees a ram, and that ram is charging, charging west and north and south. In verse 5, Daniel says that the ram did as he pleased and became great. Sounds like the Medo-Persian Empire, doesn't it? Well, we know what happened next. Alexander the Great, so you... If you haven't studied him recently, maybe you remember him from your history classes back in middle school or high school. Alexander the Great, what did he do? He conquered that great Medo-Persian empire in three years. Three years. For 200 years, the Medo-Persian empire had been the, the, the head dogs. They were, they were in charge. And Alexander the Great came and conquered that empire in three years. And then he suddenly died. At the age of 33, Alexander the Great suddenly died, and after a period of struggle, the Greek Empire was split up among four generals. What does Daniel see in the vision? He sees a male goat flying out of the west. The west, that's where Greece was. He sees a goat flying. It's traveling so fast that it's flying. Coming out of the west, he sees the goat 
furiously attacking and trampling the ram. And Daniel writes in verse 8, Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when it was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So what is Daniel seeing in these visions? What is God giving him a glimpse of? God is showing him exactly what will happen in the future. Remember, Daniel is in Babylon, the third year of Belshazzar, and God is showing him what will happen over the next 200 years. God is showing him what will happen over the next two centuries. So here again, we see one of the big themes of the book of Daniel. One of the big themes that we see on every page and every chapter is this. God is sovereign over history. He is in control. He is in charge. Who is, who's sovereign over the rise and fall of every king, of every kingdom, of every nation, of every dictator, of every president? The Lord is. Who was sovereign over the news we heard over the past week? The Lord. Who's sovereign over the news that we'll hear this week? The Lord. This is a theme again and again that we hear in the book of Daniel. God is in charge. He alone is God. And if you believe that as a Christian, if you believe that, then you will have a settled confidence, a a settled reassurance. No matter what this week brings, no matter what the next month or year brings, you know that your God is in charge. When people were living through these empires, you can imagine that they thought, wow, the the Medo-Persian Empire, it's untouchable. No one can do anything. And then in three years, the whole empire crashed and Alexander the Great took over. Then what were people thinking with Alexander the Great? Wow, who can touch such a king? Three years, he took over the biggest empire the world had ever seen. And then he suddenly died. And the empire was split up among four generals. Today, we might wonder, wow, these, these nations around the world, they seem untouchable. Who's in, who's in charge? Daniel 8 reminds us that God is. God is in charge. We need to believe that. Believe that, Christian. Believe that next week, this week, next month. Jesus is in charge. So we see that truth here, and then the vision continues, and in verse 9 we start to see the high point of the vision, which is really the low point of the vision. It's so serious, it's so sobering. And as we look at these verses, I'm going to read them again, starting in verse 9. Notice how many times the word great is used. Listen for the word great. So starting in verse 9, I'll read just a few verses. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown." And a host will be given over to it, together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. 
and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. If you were keeping track, you heard the word great four times. Now compare that with earlier in the chapter. The Medo-Persian Empire is described once as being great. Alexander the Great is described once as being great. But they are nothing compared to this little horn. This little horn who is great and great and great and great. Later in the chapter, we learn more about this little horn. Verses 23 to 25, Gabriel. Gabriel, the angel himself, interprets the vision for Daniel. He says, starting in verse 23, And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken, but by no human hand." These verses say a lot about the little horn. We can't look at everything, but here are, here are three things we can notice in these verses about the little horn. What does he do? First, the little horn arrogantly opposes God. He opposes God himself. In these verses, we read about the prince of the host and the prince of princes. Nearly all commentators agree that these are, these are references to God himself. Who's the prince of princes? Who's the prince of the host? It's God. God, the ancient of days who sits on his throne. So does the little horn humbly sit under this God and worship him and bow before him? No. He arrogantly opposes God himself. He opposes God to his face. We also see, secondly, that the little horn eradicates God's worship. This goes together with the first point. He opposes God. He eradicates God's worship. The little horn takes away the regular burnt offering in the temple. He's described as overthrowing the place of God's sanctuary. So does the little horn join in the gathered worship of God's people? No, he forbids it. He eradicates it. He tries to stamp it out, and he succeeds. Third, and lastly... And most soberingly, well, it's all sobering. But the little horn persecutes God's people. In these verses, we read about the host and the stars. You may have noticed that as we read. These, these are words, host and stars. These are words for the saints, for God's people. So how does the little horn treat the host, the stars, the people of God? Verse 10 tells us that he throws some of them to the ground and tramples on them. Verse 24 tells us that he destroys the people who are the saints. He throws them down, tramples them, destroys them. So in this vision, we're seeing a little horn who persecutes God's people, who 
eradicates God's worship, who opposes God himself. Then, as verse 25 says, this horn, this arrogant little horn, is broken, but by no human hand. You may all be wondering, who is this little horn? Who is this little horn? Well, we'll get there, Jimmy. Almost all commentators agree that this horn first is representing Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV. So he was after Alexander the Great, after these four generals. He rose to power in about 175 B.C. And remember, Daniel was seeing his vision in 550. So Antiochus IV came to power in 175 B.C. So Daniel is seeing a vision of what will happen 375 years into the future. And what's going to happen? This ruler, Antiochus IV, comes to power. We know a lot about him. We can't look into it all. We can't look into all of the history. But here are some things that he did. On his coins that he printed and, and sent out throughout the empire, he referred to himself as Epiphanes. Epiphanes, which means God manifest or God revealed. This man had an ego. He said, look at me. Do you, know what I, do you want to know who God is? Do you want to know who God is revealed now on the earth? It's me. I am God manifest. Antiochus Epiphanes. He stopped the temple sacrifices He eradicated God's worship. He stopped the temple sacrifices and he set up an altar to Zeus instead. He ordered the Jews to sacrifice pigs. And one source says that he gave his men orders to cut down without mercy everyone they met and to slaughter anyone they found hiding in the houses. They murdered everyone. That was Antiochus IV. We know from history that what Daniel sees here is exactly what happened. This is what happened. God's people were persecuted intensely, severely by Antiochus IV in 175 BC. No wonder an angel cries out, for how long? For how long? Look with me again at verse 13. So this is chapter 8, verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, and the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary, and host to be trampled underfoot? The angel is saying, For how long? This is horrific. How long will this last? For how long? It's an angel saying it. An angel says, For how long? And there's an answer. Thank God. There's an answer. For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful place, its rightful state. In other words, this persecution won't go on forever. It won't last forever. It's limited by the Lord. It won't be over in a day or in a month or even in a year. But it will end. God has set a limit to it to the day. 2,300 days. 
And we know that this is exactly what happened. Antiochus died a sudden, apparently gruesome death, and, and a revolt called the Maccabean Revolt ended the persecution. Are you beginning to see the, the point of this chapter? Are you beginning to see the main message coming out? What Daniel is seeing, what he's hearing in these visions is this. Persecution is coming. Persecution is coming. You can be certain of it. But its days are numbered. Persecution is coming, but its days are numbered. It's coming. It's coming for God's people. After two empires will come a ruler who will crush the saints. God warns his people. He says, look out. This is what's coming. It is coming. And as we think about that, as we think about what's described in these verses, is it any wonder that Daniel responded the way he did? Is it any wonder that Daniel responded this way? Verse 27 says, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. He was sick for days. He was in bed for days. He was appalled. One commentator says this is describing godly emotional depression. It is godly, righteous, holy, emotional depression. And after reading this, don't you think it's a fitting response? He's appalled. Persecution is coming, but its days are numbered. Its days are numbered. It won't go on forever. God is sovereign over suffering. He's sovereign over persecution. And he has set a limit for it. It's a promise like this. It's a certainty like this that enables Daniel to literally get out of bed. He was overcome and lay sick for some days, but then I arose and went about the king's business. He sees this horrific vision of what's to come, but he knows that God's sovereign. He knows that it has a limit, and that enables him to literally get out of bed and go about his work. He's able to go about the king's business. Persecution would come, but God had numbered its days. Now, at this point in the sermon, it's important that we ask a really important question. That's important twice in one in one sentence. We need to ask the question, how does this apply to us? What is the relevance of Daniel 8 for us, for you and me? If this prophecy was fulfilled so long ago, we're talking about the immediate fulfillment with Antiochus in 175 and several years later, in 175 BC. If all of this was fulfilled, then, then how is this vision relevant for us today? How, how is it relevant? Or, to be more specific, if the point is, Daniel, persecution is coming, but its days are numbered, if that's the point, is that, is that the message that we should be hearing? Should you and I be hearing God's message through this chapter, through his word, persecution is coming, but its days are numbered? Is that what you and I should be hearing? Is that what you and I should be picking up on? The Bible's answer is yes. The Bible's answer is yes. This message applies just as much to us. 
Persecution is coming, but its days are numbered. If we fast forward to the New Testament, if we look to what Jesus said to his disciples, he said many things, but he said for those who will follow him, for his disciples, well, he doesn't say that following him will be a cakewalk, that it will be easy, that it will be carefree, You know what Jesus said to his disciples over and over again? He said things like this. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. To keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember. You may remember what I have, that I told them to you. There Jesus is saying, persecution is coming. I have told you so you can be ready for it. And what do you think? Since Jesus spoke those words, haven't they proven true? Aren't Christians today being persecuted for their faith? Haven't Christians been persecuted since Jesus first spoke those words 2,000 years ago? We all know this is true. Persecution is a reality for the people of God. But persecution is not new to the 21st century or even to the 1st century. It goes back even further. Persecution of the saints goes back even further. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. After Satan had tempted Adam and Eve to sin, God cursed the serpent. He cursed Satan and said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So began, at that moment, so began an irreconcilable war between the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman. In other words, so so began Satan's persecution of the saints. All the way back in the Garden of Eden. This is what we see, and we see it throughout the Bible. We find it in the very next chapter of Genesis, Genesis 4, when Cain kills Abel. You're familiar with that story. When Cain kills Abel, what are we seeing? What are we seeing? We are seeing the seed of Satan killing the seed of the woman. As we keep reading, we come to the book of Exodus. When Pharaoh ordered the drowning of the Hebrew boys, what are we seeing? What are we seeing? We are seeing a battle in the greater war. We're seeing Pharaoh, the seed of Satan, killing the seed of the woman. The Hebrew boys. When we come to Daniel 8, what are we seeing? Antiochus, the seed of Satan, is killing the seed of the woman. There's an irreconcilable war starting all the way back in Genesis that we're seeing throughout all of history. We see all throughout the Bible. This is what we read in the Bible, this persecution of the saints. And I want to pause at this point and bring up something that's crucial for us to think about. If there's this war, then you and I must know and must realize whose side we're on. There are two camps. There are two sides. There's the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. There's, n- there's not a middle ground. No one is neutral. No one is on the fence. About two weeks ago, Becky had an ultrasound 
And the doctor said something that caught my attention. He, he talked about the, the baby we would have and made some comment about how that baby is innocent. And in a sense, that's true as far as this baby hasn't had, hasn't had opportunities to, to sin. In that sense, that baby is innocent. But that baby, each one of us, zooming out, each one of us was born with a heart that in time opposed God, opposed his people, opposed his worship. The Bible describes how we're born dead in our sin, captives of the kingdom of Satan. That's our predicament. That's our problem. That's how we're born into this world. And in time, it comes out. So God is so gracious in sending the Father in love to die for his enemies, to die for people like you and me who couldn't save ourselves. This is my story, the story of someone who opposed God, but who was graciously saved, who was brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. Christ died on the cross for sinners like us. And we have to come to terms with that, with that truth. There are two camps. There are two camps in this irreconcilable war. Whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? Christ welcomes us to come to him. If you are not on the side of Jesus Christ, the doors are open. The invitation is open for you to come to Christ and be brought into the kingdom of light. I was referring to this side as the kingdom of darkness. Don't take that, don't take that personally. But we have to come to grips with this. There is, as I'm describing, this war. And every one of us is on one side or the other. So as we think about this, and as we think about Daniel, as we think about the New Testament, Jesus says to his disciples, look, being a disciple will, be, will involve persecution. That's the job description. That's in the job description of a disciple, a follower of Jesus. Jesus comes and says, he doesn't say, hey, look, the battle is over. The war is over. No, he says it's going to keep going. But I have dealt the, the decisive death blow to Satan. That's what Jesus comes and says. He says, in the world you will have trouble. So persecution has come. It's now and it will come. But we, as we think about this, we really need to go one step further. Christians should not only expect persecution in general. As we read the New Testament, we see that there's an expectation of a climactic persecution. A final great persecution. Think of it like an anti-God wave that started all the way back in Genesis. It's a wave an anti-God impulse, an anti-God fervor that's building throughout all of history, all of salvation history. It's a wave that's building, and it will come to a breaking point. It will crash down. And Jesus talks about this. And can you guess where he goes in the Old Testament to make his point? Where do you think he goes in the Old Testament to say, hey, look, the persecution back then isn't over. In fact, it's pointing to a greater persecution that's to come. Where do, you think, where do you think Jesus goes? He goes to Daniel. 
He goes to Daniel. Listen to what Jesus says in one of these places, Matthew 24. He says, listen to these words. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Did you pick up on those words, the abomination of desolation? That's language from Daniel 8, from Daniel 9, from Daniel 11 that we'll come to in future weeks. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect those days will be cut short. In other words, there's a persecution coming, the likes of which we have never seen before. There's a climactic final persecution coming. That persecution may have been partially fulfilled in Antiochus, but there's more to come. That persecution under Antiochus is actually a preview of the great persecution to come. What did Antiochus do back in 175 B.C.? He opposed God himself. He eradicated God's worship and he furiously persecuted the people of God. In short, as our brother Jimmy pointed out, Antiochus is really a preview of the Antichrist. Antiochus here is a preview of the Antichrist, the final ruler, that one who will unleash a Persecution on God's saints, the likes of which we have never seen before. And that's, that's astounding to think about. We have seen, we know from church history, that God's people, you and I, and so many others, have, have, been, have been persecuted so intensely, so vigorously, so furiously. But that's nothing compared to what's coming under the Antichrist, whom Antiochus prefigures. So persecution is coming. It's coming. How do you feel about that? As we reflect on that, as that soaks in, I think we'll begin to understand why Daniel felt sick. He felt sick. He was in bed for days. As we think of what's to come, the right response is to be appalled. We don't know when this persecution will come, but we're seeing it now, and it will come in a greater sense to come. We don't know when it will be, but we're told that God, we're told by God that it is coming. God has told us that it's coming. That in and of itself is such a kindness of God. God has told us that it's coming, we all know what it's like to be surprised, right? When you see something coming, you can prepare. If you play a contact sport and you see a hit coming, you can brace yourself. When you're in the house and you see a sibling duck behind a door, you know that he or she might be ready to jump out and surprise you. We know what it's like to see something coming. Well, God has showed us what's to come. And he has shown us 
what's to come so that we can prepare, so that we can brace ourselves, so that we can know. This is what we need to take to heart. Christians need to take this to heart. You and I need to take this to heart. It's important for each one of us to to ask, do we have a category for this kind of suffering? Do you have a category in your mind for this kind of suffering? Is this, as you think about what it means to follow Jesus, is this on your working job description? Is this a possibility for you? Are you thinking this could come for me? Or, no, 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 I must be exempt from something like this. We have to take this, we have to think about this and meditate on it and take it to heart. Persecution is coming, but its days are numbered. And did you catch what Jesus said when he spoke about that persecution? It, it sounds so much like Daniel 8. I didn't study the context, but listen to this. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, for the sake of you and me, for the sake of God's saints, those days will be cut short. We have Jesus' promise, in other words, that that persecution won't last forever. It has an end date, an expiration date. And that's the assurance that we need to hear. You know what it's like to go on a run, or maybe that was years ago, but you know what it's like to do something that's really hard. What helps you? It helps you to know this will be over soon. This run, there are only so many miles in a marathon. There's an end date, and that helps us. Well, same here. This persecution won't last forever. And we can be sure, we can be sure of that, even though we're talking about the Antichrist. We can be sure that the persecution won't last forever because, well, what happened to Antiochus? Verse 25 tells us, don't miss this. And he shall rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. By no human hand. We have a savior, brothers and sisters, who is no mere man. As the Bible reflects on this persecution to come, here's what Paul says. You know what he says in Second Thessalonians? And when the lawless one, when the Antichrist, in other words, is revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Jesus Christ will kill the Antichrist. Just like Antiochus was broken, so the Antichrist will be broken by Jesus Christ. By the appearance of his coming, by the appearance of his coming, he will deal with the Antichrist. He will be broken. The Antichrist will be broken just like the forerunner Antiochus was broken. Our hope, brothers and sisters, our hope really is, it really is in Jesus Christ and in him alone. In him alone. Persecution is coming. And Jesus knows our persecution. He knows it. He knows it more than, more than anyone. Think about the life of Jesus. At his birth, the king, Herod, tried to kill him. The devil tempted him in the wilderness. People from his hometown didn't welcome him. They tried to throw him off a cliff. The religious leaders plotted his death. The soldiers mocked and flogged and crucified him. Then on the cross, Satan killed Jesus, the Son of Man. 
More than anyone else, Jesus experienced persecution. Persecution is coming, but Jesus knows persecution. He has experienced it. He's a great high priest who sympathizes with our every weakness, including persecution. Persecution is not only coming, but who has numbered its days? Jesus Christ. He is the one who crushed Satan's head by rising from the grave. He is the one who received the kingdom and reigns at the Father's side now. He is the one who killed or will kill the Antichrist and vindicate his persecuted people. So this, friends, is good news. This is good news for God's people, for us today, in all times, in all circumstances, in all places. These promises, these certainties from our God are what enable us, like Daniel, to literally get out of bed and go about our business. These promises enable us to walk into our normal work with a settled confidence. We can literally get out of bed because God's word is true. So trust the Lord. Trust in his word. Hope in him. Be faithful. Follow Jesus without compromise. And go about the business that God has called you to. As Daniel went about the king's business, each one of us has business that God has called us to. We can go about that as we trust the Lord by faith. Yes, persecution is coming. Yes, one like Antiochus, the Antichrist, is coming. But so is Christ. Christ is coming. And then the persecution will end and will enter into God's never-ending kingdom. That is our hope. Amen.